Hello and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host Aaron and this is the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three. I have my list and my red pen ready because today we're discussing Hidden Horror Gems. Just to set expectations, the films we're discussing today are all, at least to me, good films. I would recommend every single movie on this list. Now, none of these are secret masterpieces. Even if you are only a casual horror movie fan, chances are you probably at least have a general awareness of the really great ones. Even if you haven't seen them, you know movies like Jaws and The Silence of the Lambs and Scream and even recent ones like The Babadook. So I'm not going to surprise you today with some masterpiece of horror that you've never heard of, but these are all good. I'm going to do things a little bit differently and save the elimination for the end of the episode, but I am still going to choose three surviving films. But before we get started again, as I already mentioned, I recommend all of these. If you have not seen these films and you like horror and are willing to give a new movie a try, 100% all of these I recommend. Now also too, it's worth noting that these are not obscure movies. There is a very significant chance that you have at least heard of a few of them anyway. Most of these did go to theaters. When I call these hidden horror gems, what I mean is they're not really talked about, they weren't particularly successful, and maybe no one really remembers them. So I don't mean hidden like you've never heard of them, I mean hidden more like they never found success, either in their initial release or in the years since, where some movies like John Carpenter's The Thing doesn't do particularly well and then becomes a cult classic, or even The Babadook where it doesn't really make money in theaters, but it becomes discovered on home video. The films we're discussing today are The Crazies, The Void, The Signal, Splinter, Land of the Dead, Suspiria, Subspecies, Snapshot, Suicide Club, The Caller, and Pontypool. Alright, let's go ahead and just start at the top with The Crazies. This one is from 2010. It's a remake of the 1973 George Romero movie. The Crazies is one of those examples where the remake, to me at least, is better. While their storylines are pretty similar, the original film is more of a anti-government horror film. In The Crazies, a town is contaminated and it starts turning people mad. It's basically a zombie movie, but they're not really zombies. They're really just mad. They've gone mad. The original film is kind of a satire. Imagine, is there a term for satire that's not funny? (laughs) I don't know. But the first one's more of a satire of the failures of the government and how the government would try to handle a small town being contaminated with zombies. I like the original Crazies, but it's definitely a drier horror film. If you're looking for thrills, the original is not really the movie to do it. But the new one, though, the 2010 Crazies that we're talking about today, what I really love about it is it just starts. So many movies begin with 20 to 30 minutes of setup of just getting to know the characters, which is fine, but you're just waiting for it to get to the point. You're waiting for it to get to what the movie is supposed to be about. Kind of like The Black Phone that came out recently. I liked The Black Phone, but I was growing impatient waiting to get to that 30-minute mark because all the advertising was this kid in the room with the phone, and so I was just waiting to get to the kid in the room with the phone, you know? The Crazies skips all of that. One of the very first scenes is someone who's gone mad getting shot publicly, and it starts the escalation right away. And eventually this whole small town is effectively destroyed. Everybody is killing each other, and you have a sheriff, a deputy, and the sheriff's family trying to escape the town. That's what the whole movie is about. So they're dealing with the crazies, but also too with the government who doesn't want anyone to leave. It's definitely flashier than the original. The crazies is exciting. It's good. What I really appreciate about it is it's a modestly budgeted theatrical film, and I'm saying that because so many zombie movies are 
straight to video, straight to Redbox, super low budget garbage, especially the last 15 years. Once Walking Dead did zombies on television, theatrical zombie films kind of died off. But outside of television, our zombie fix really has to be older movies, kind of like this Crazies remake, which was 12 years ago already, or TV. So long story short is that it's nice to watch a well-made, well-budgeted horror film because I miss this. We don't really get this anymore. Next is The Void. The Void was directed by, I'm probably going to mess up his last name, but it's Steve Katansky, I believe. Now, this director has done other movies, including one that is a particular favorite of mine called Manborg. Manborg is an hour long, technically an hour and five, with a fake movie trailer that is after the credits. They say they had a $1,000 budget. It was filmed against a green screen in a basement, and it's amazing. It's hilarious. That one is sci-fi, so it's not on today's list, but this director made that. So The Void, you can tell that they may not have had a lot of time or resources. So that's a bit of a hindrance. I think I think the tone and story and mood of this film is spot on, but really the budget kind of hurts it. The Void is a dark, twisted, weird movie. It's a Lovecraftian horror. It's about a hospital where one night an injured person comes in and while they're scrambling to help, the hospital is surrounded by these hooded cult-like figures that won't let anyone leave. And then on top of that, people within the hospital start becoming murderous and even transforming into tentacle creatures. Even the hospital hallways start changing. They become darker and wetter, almost implying a sort of internal organ kind of look. And most of the movie is a sort of what is going on freak out. It is harmed by the budget. I imagine with a little more time and a little more money, it could have been polished. It's still really good though. It is a pessimistic, even narcissistic film. If you like monsters and transformations and what the heck is going on type movies, check it out. It's gory. It's weird. The real driving force of this film is that there's a constant sense of, I don't know what is happening and there's nothing we can do. I could see that losing some people though, because most horror movies, you always have that sense of they can succeed. They can defeat Freddy. They can defeat Chucky. But in The Void, it doesn't really give you that satisfaction. You usually have that hope as a viewer, whether you internalize it or not, that they're going to get away, that they're going to survive, that they're going to something. But The Void just doesn't give you that. Next is The Signal from 2007. It's an anthology, sort of. It has three separate stories by different directors, but they interact. Characters crisscross. In The Signal, there's, as the title suggests, there's a signal in televisions and cell phones that turn people mad. So we're back to that madness idea, like in The Crazies. And even in The Signal, there's the tagline that's used, and one of the characters says, Do you have the crazy? One of the stories is about a man trying to find his girlfriend among the chaos. One of them involves a birthday party, and that one goes into comedy. And this is where I think The Signal might lose some people, because it's not just horror. One of the stories is, but then one of the stories is more comedy. Unlike Creepshow, where the horror is mixed with the comedy, in The Signal, you get a whole chunk of straight horror, and then a chunk of straight comedy. What's interesting, though, is that when these people go mad, they don't turn into zombies like the crazies. They maintain their personalities. They're just psycho. And so even when some characters have the crazy, they still talk like themselves. They still have ideas. They still try to put a body in a trunk. So it's madness with their personalities. It is very low budget. 
the tonal shift is weird, kind of. Being an anthology setup, it's easy to sort of separate them, but but I can see why some people would want a more solid tone throughout. Personally, I love the ending. The ending is what gets me. That's what always makes me go back to the signal because I won't ruin it here, but the final shot of the film gives you a moment. It teases a moment where it just makes you feel good, which is a weird thing to say about a horror movie. It's not, you know, Annie. It's not the sun will come out tomorrow, but it gives you just a, a glimmer of hope. It makes you want an outcome for these characters. Now, I do want to point out there is another movie called The Signal that's more of a sci-fi movie with Lawrence Fishburne that came out only a few years after this other signal. Try not to confuse them, but if you do, the Lawrence Fishburne signal is actually really good too. I like that movie a lot. I would have included it, but it's science fiction, not horror. Next is a Japanese movie called Suicide Club from 2001. It also has the English title Suicide Circle, so you might see it as that depending on where you live. Or in Japanese, it's called Jisatsu Sakuru. Suicide Club is part of the huge Japanese horror boom in the 90s and early 2000s that did come over here. In Japan, they had Juwan, also known as The Grudge, and they had Ringu, which came over here as The Ring. There's One Missed Call, there's The Eye. We remade a bunch of these in the United States. Suicide Club has not been remade. There is no English remake that I'm aware of, but it was part of that big J-horror boom. The entire movie, kind of like actually, kind of like The Void, the entire movie is, what is going on? <laughs> That's the mood of the entire film. In the movie, random Japanese citizens are killing themselves in truly horrific ways. The opening scene is kind of funny now. I mean, the movie is, it's a dark comedy, sort of, maybe. Uh, we'll get into that. I don't want to describe it here, but the opening is uh, a gut punch. It is weirdly comical, gross, over-the-top, shocking. The special effects haven't aged the best because it has been two decades, the detective, the main investigator on the case, finds a roll of human skin stitched together, and it's just this, what is going on? Why are people doing this? It makes no sense. Part of the issue that some viewers might have is, I think there are some cultural differences that make how we absorb this film different than what may have been intended, because I don't know if this is supposed to be dark comedy or not. I can't tell. <laughs> Some viewers might be kind of lost or frustrated because in Japanese horror in particular, just because is a good enough reason for things to happen. A lot of viewers in the United States want reasons, which is why the American version of The Ring is way longer than the Japanese version. So they are not in a hurry in these original Japanese horror films to explain why. Bad things happen because bad things happen. Evil little girls are evil because they're evil, which isn't a satisfactory answer for a lot of viewers. This movie's definitely over the top, but the detective character is grounded. You see him frustrated, angry, and confused because how would a real life, or realistic at least, but how would a real life police officer investigate a Freddy Krueger dream killing? What happens when reality has to face the impossible? And that's represented in the detective character in this movie. But if you're looking for answers, or at least satisfactory answers, uh, it's not going to give it to you. But if you are into Japanese horror, I highly recommend Suicide Club. It's not as great as Ringu or Juon, because you know those are classics for a reason. Even Dark Water comes up in conversation before Suicide Club. And Dark Water was remade in the United States with Jennifer Connelly. But Suicide Club? 
It's twisty, it's weird, it's it's trippy, it's bizarre, and a darkly funny movie, maybe? <laughs> Next, I'm going to talk about Snapshot, also known as The Day After Halloween. So this movie came out in 1979, and in 1978, there was a little horror movie called Halloween. So when Snapshot was also released with the title The Day After Halloween, you can kind of imagine what they were trying to cash in on, right? <laughs> it's not subtle. But I will refer to it as Snapshot. That's how I know the movie. And just like The Caller, which we'll get to next, Snapshot was released on Blu-ray by Vinegar Syndrome. They are a specialty label, kind of like Shout Factory or Severin or Criterion. What Vinegar Syndrome specializes in, though, is restoration and preservation of movies that were shot on film. A lot of them are forgotten films or lost films or even movies that have never been released. Snapshot is actually one of my favorite movies that Vinegar Syndrome has released. It has a 5.1 on IMDb, so I'm wondering if I am in the minority on this. Maybe you wouldn't like it. I don't know. In the film, Angela is this sort of uh, mousy, low self-esteem woman who decides to pursue modeling and stumbles into nude modeling. She becomes very successful, and at the same time, her ex-boyfriend is kind of following her and harassing her, and she develops a stalker. Meanwhile, her family doesn't support her. They don't support her actions. And the horror element is pretty light. It's more about her modeling career and dealing with family drama and ex-boyfriend drama. And then just sprinkled through the movie are these sort of stalker elements. If you go into it knowing or expecting that it's a horror film, I think that helps a little bit with the dread. It might make you wish something more was happening. Potentially, you might be bored. But it sort of creates this mood of, what is this building towards? It makes you afraid for her. And of course, the other release title is riding on the Halloween success, but it is kind of like Halloween. If you watch that first movie, that first Halloween movie, Laurie Strode has nothing to do with Michael Myers. Sure, she sees him behind a hedge now and then, but she doesn't know who Michael Myers is. She's not afraid of him. She's not running from him. They really only meet in the climax of the film. And why Halloween works as a scary movie, you are afraid for her because you know that she doesn't know what's there. She doesn't know the danger. And Snapshot is kind of like that too, in that sense that you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. You like this character, you just suspect, based on what you know going into it, that something is going to happen. Now, it's not a huge something. It's not even as horrific as the first Halloween. I think only one person dies in the whole film, maybe? So if you expect a character in a mask stabbing a bunch of people, that's not this movie. It's more like somebody being a model, and maybe there's a van in the background with its lights on. Personally, I love it. I think Snapshot is great. I really enjoy this film. But as the 5.1 out of 10 on IMDb shows, eh, it's probably not loved. So approach with caution. Next is the other movie on this list that was released on Blu-ray by Vinegar Syndrome is The Caller from 1987. For this one, I don't know how much I can or should say because The Caller is one of those movies where the less you know going into it, the better. Malcolm McDowell from Clockwork Orange and a ton of other stuff, he shows up unannounced at a woman's house and asks to use the phone. And then I don't really want to say much else. There's only two actors in it, and it's just them talking. I can say, and because it's on a horror list, you can probably imagine, that the caller, Malcolm McDowell, that he is there with nefarious motives. And yeah, there is more to it. If I had to guess what most people wouldn't like about the movie, it's probably that it's maybe boring. I don't think it's boring. I think it's good. That's why it's on here. I recommend all of these. But 
It's just two people in a house talking. It's not Tarantino-esque, but Quentin Tarantino films kind of come to mind because imagine those first five minutes of Inglorious Bastards where it's just a conversation at a table. It's very intense because you know one or both of the characters are lying. The caller is kind of like that. Now, I'm not comparing it to Tarantino. It doesn't have that Tarantino feel. It's not like that at all. But the art of the conversation and wondering what these people really mean is the driving force of the film. And that might lose some people. I find it kind of fascinating. It's the kind of movie where I could imagine someone remaking it today with big stars. Making it like a Shyamalan movie. I could see that. Next, we're going to talk about Splinter from 2008. This is another zombie-ish movie. And like The Caller, it is a one-location movie. It has a few more people in it. It's about a thief and a couple who get trapped in a gas station with a zombie-like monster outside. As the title suggests, Splinter, the zombie has little porcupine-like spikes all over them. But what makes Splinter so noteworthy is that it did something that I never really considered before with zombie movies. The idea of a zombie is reanimated flesh, right? And yet we still apply a human or humanoid sensibility to them. Like in almost all zombie movies and TV shows, if you destroy the brain, the zombie goes down, right? But if it's just reanimated flesh, why does the brain have anything to do with anything? Why are they still walking on two legs? And Splinter, what it does is every bit of the person is reanimated. So if you cut off the arm, the arm still moves around, rolls around on its own. The body rolls. It's not on its two feet. Every single piece, every little piece is animated and moves and has those little splinters on it that make it dangerous. And that is a lot scarier. It's not a destroy the brain scenario. A lot of the obvious things you would expect in one of these movies happens in this. Someone shows up outside and they try to flag them down and no, don't come in here. You know, you know where it's going. The setting is kind of cool though. Outside of Clerks, I don't know of that many movies that take place in a convenience store. And what that also does is that it increases the brightness of the film. And what I mean by that is a lot of horror movies take place at night. They use darkness to hide things in shadows to make you scared. But because this is in a convenience store, it's all brightly lit. And being in brightness, but still in danger, is really scary. We associate light with safety. And this is a well-lit, fluorescent-lit horror movie. That, to me, kind of adds to the scariness. I like it. Next, we'll talk about Land of the Dead. And this one is... This one's a little tough, because... It's by George Romero, who did the original Crazies, but he also did Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, which are two of my all-time favorite top ten movies. And his original zombie trilogy, so George Romero did Night, Dawn, and Day of the Dead. And Romero is credited with creating the zombie as a movie monster as we know it today. The shambling, flesh-eating, walking dead. That's him. Night of the Living Dead was the first movie to do it like that. Each of his three original dead movies had social subtext. So Land of the Dead in 2005 was his big comeback, his big return to the genre. The movie itself, though, has a particular Romero style, and then the social message isn't even subtext in it, it's just text. Land of the Dead is about us versus them, the 1%, and just for good measure, the war in the Middle East. But it's not subtle at all, and that's part of its problem. It's also very 70s. Romero has a particular style that didn't grow with the times, in a general sense, of course, you want every filmmaker to grow with the times, but Romero kind of stuck to his own style. And so Land of the Dead feels like a 1970s movie shot in 2005. It's a little slower. It's a little more obvious. The film is not in a hurry to really do anything. 
by this time when it came out, people were expecting, you know, yeah, raw zombies. And they got a much slower critical film. If you are expecting splatter, this is not that. This is not even The Walking Dead. It's a more deliberate film. It's about a team of scavengers and zombie killers in a closed-off human city where they go out beyond the borders, they look for supplies, they kill zombies, they have a giant weaponized RV called Dead Reckoning. It has a great cast, John Leguizamo, Dennis Hopper, and Dennis Hopper plays one of the rich leaders of this skyscraper, this tower where the 1%, the rich live, because in this human city, inside the walls, there's still the poor section where the people live on the ground, and then the rich people still have fancy dinners, fancy cars. It doesn't have the style of Snowpiercer, but the same kind of idea, the front of the train versus the back of the train in a world where so many others have already died. And they don't realize that the fence that protects them really means that they're in a cage. That sort of thing. It's really on the nose. I hate to say plain, so I'm not going to say plain, but I really kind of like how simple it is. It's a simpler story. They're not attempting to do anything grand with it. And I like it for that. But if you're expecting a modern 28 Days Later zombie movie, this is not it. And the heavy-handed message at the end, I actually really kind of hate. (laughs) Not even disagree with, I kind of hate. But aside from that, I enjoy the heck out of Land of the Dead. I do have one complaint that is really problematic for me, though. The zombie makeup. Zombie fans have endured all kinds of different looks. In the original Dawn of the Dead, the zombies are basically blue for some reason. In Land of the Dead, though, there's a main character zombie, and they're trying to show that the zombies are learning, so maybe there is some humanity still in them. But the main zombie, instead of looking like a rotting corpse, it's just his face that is sort of rotting. But because it's just the face, he looks less like a zombie and more like one of the vampires from Buffy the Vampire Slayer when their face goes evil. It's really distracting, especially when you make it the main character, or the main zombie character, at least. Truly awful. I hate it. I hate it so much. I like the movie. I like the idea of the character. But man, the makeup on him is wrong. That's a good way to put it. It's just wrong. But that aside, Land of the Dead, I like it. All right, the next we'll talk about is Suspiria. And this one is the 2018 remake of the 1970s Dario Argento classic. The original Suspiria is one of the best horror films ever made. I love Suspiria. It's a bombastic, odd film in all the right ways. This new one, though, is an hour longer. It's two and a half hours long, and they take the basic premise of the film, which is an American ballerina goes to a dance academy in Berlin, and the dance academy happens to be run by witches. And that's not a spoiler. It's it's pretty clear from early on. And that's where these two diverge. Stylistically, they are radically different. Hugely different. The new one that we're discussing requires a lot of patience. It's a slow burn but it is truly creepy, and it's usually long shots, long, moody shots just set to music of somebody staring at something or someone having a very long conversation, and it's all about mood building. I guarantee you that many would probably think that it's way too slow and they should cut a whole bunch. I disagree, and I'm one of the first people to complain that a movie is too long. (laughs) You've heard me say it on the show before. I complain about the length of films all the time. Suspiria, it's all about building mood and dread. Now, I've said before that comedies and horror movies shouldn't be over two hours because you can only be scared for so long and certain things can only be amusing or funny for so long. That's why horror and comedy really should have some brevity. Suspiria has, from minute one, just a nonstop sense of dread. And it doesn't hesitate to spend five or even ten minutes with other characters that are not the main character and everything just builds and builds. The movie slowly feeds you all the information you need. 
it's not really a mystery. I mean, there is sort of a mystery element to it, but it keeps giving you these little nuggets and it's building the path to the ending and you're just filled with dread the whole time. Tilda Swinton is in it as well and she plays an 85-year-old man and the makeup is incredible, but her voice is not convincing. I don't know if they had planned to digitally deepen her voice or change it and they just didn't. It sounds like Tilda Swinton's voice coming out of an old man. It's weird. That's distracting. And no, I didn't ruin any plot twists with that character being male. I assume they just thought it would be cool to have her do it. Like, hey, let's put her in makeup and have her play an old man. The ending sequence, which I won't spoil here, but the ending sequence is bonkers. And it's filmed in this sort of choppy style, I believe, in order to get the R rating because it's somewhat hard to kind of see exactly what's happening. It's super gory. Lots of very naked people, and I think they filmed it with this sort of choppy look in order to disguise some of what you're seeing in order to get the R rating, because otherwise that would have been very graphic in both horror and nudity. It's the big ending, and I really hate the way that that looks. I really wish it was clearer visually, but Suspiria rewards you. If you can, I almost said endure, but that doesn't feel like a kind word, but maybe that is, maybe that is the right word. Put your phone away. Don't have any distractions. Just absorb the film. It's great. Suspiria is great. The way they film Berlin, where it's constantly raining, even though it's a remake, it makes it weird to say this, but I guarantee you've seen nothing like it. And I 100% recommend the original Suspiria as well. As mentioned, it's a favorite. I think it's one of the best horror movies ever. And this remake that's on this list is incredibly different and fantastic. Next on the list is Subspecies from 1991. Now, of all the movies on this list, this is the one that is truly a low-budget, straight-to-video film. It was made for video. It was made for blockbuster shelves and Hollywood video. It was never intended for theaters. It was made for shelves. It's by Full Moon, the same company that made Puppet Master and Trancers. There are six Trancers movies and 13 Puppet Master movies, I think. They also made Evil Bong, which has eight movies in its series, and Ginger Dead Man, which has four movies in its series, if that gives you the idea of the content that Full Moon puts out. They specialized in straight-to-video horror sci-fi fantasy, and if you were a child of Blockbuster of that era, you will undoubtedly recognize the box art for some of their films. They are one of the first and most successful companies to embrace straight-to-video in the big home video boom. Subspecies is one of their more successful series. There are four main movies and one spinoff, so there are five subspecies movies in total. And after 25 years, a new sequel is coming out in the next year with the original director and the original actor coming back, so that's exciting. Subspecies has a 5.5 on IMDb, so that's a pretty high score for straight-to-video horror. And while the budget was low, here's the thing. Charles Band, who ran Full Moon, and he also ran Empire, which was another company that made ghoulies and robot jocks, he owned a castle in Italy, like a bona fide castle. And so because of that, he was able to maximize these budgets. And so while you may have a vampire movie, oh yeah, Subspecies is about a vampire. (laughs) Did I mention that? Um, So you have this vampire movie that costs 50 grand, but they were able to film it at a genuine castle that increased the look of the film significantly. Because no matter how cheap your film is, if you're shooting at a real castle, that adds so much production value to your film. Subspecies looks amazing. There's some great stop motion and forced perspective in it with these little demon guys that are about a foot tall. The main vampire is named Radu, and he 
has this husky voice that is great, and the look of him is fantastic. Radu is a great character. In the film, Radu kills his father to steal the all-powerful Bloodstone. Meanwhile, some American students show up at the castle, and Radu falls in love with one of them. Story-wise, it's not a direct, like, one-to-one telling of Dracula, but it's sort of similar with the vampire falling in love, but he is never really romanticized. Radu is a villain, and he stays a villain. It's definitely cheap. I'm sure it's on Tubi, and I don't know if they have the remastered version or not. Even though the films were cheap, all of the video-era films that Full Moon made were shot on film, and so they have been able to go back to the film elements and remaster these negatives. So if you're able to see the remastered subspecies, it looks pretty good. It is a cheaper film, it is a simpler film, but it is one of the best examples of the straight-to-video era. You can tell it's not a theatrical film, but it was still shot on film in a beautiful location with a cool vampire. I'm a fan of the series. Of course, as with most franchises, the sequels become weaker as it progresses. Subspecies? Well, I guess those sequels really aren't great either. I can rewatch any of them. I really love 70s and 80s TV movies, and I really love straight-to-video movies in the 90s. I think the limitations of their budget and format made them fall heavier on melodrama or creativity. They had to stretch what they had with limited resources and a limited format. I applaud that, and I like subspecies. And last we have Pontypool. And, like Splinter and The Caller, Pontypool is a one-location film. It takes place in a radio station. It's about a shock jock who recently lost his job at a big station, and he goes to work for a small radio station, I believe in Canada. And on his first night on the job, what seems to be a zombie outbreak happens. And what is really exceptional about Pontypool is the film never leaves the radio station. There's no scenes of chaos. There's no zombie hordes. There's almost no zombies at all, really. It's just the radio station manager and the radio jockey taking calls and trying to figure out if what they're hearing is real. So you never see the zombie apocalypse happening. How much does it take for you to believe it? The tagline is, shut up or die, which I really like, and this might be somewhat of a spoiler. If you were to ask anyone what Pontypool is about, they would probably spoil this, so I'm going to go ahead and spoil it here. The zombie plague? Virus? I don't know what the term would be, but the zombieism spreads through speech, which is a very interesting concept. Saying certain words in a certain order turns you into a zombie, and so you have a radio jockey whose job it is to talk trying to figure out how to survive this and how to warn people. I really dig how they handle the unseen, the unseen factor, because you don't get visual confirmation. And watching this big city radio personality stuck in this small station trying to stay calm, it's incredibly original. It is not boring in any way, and it never resorts to carnage. There's very little blood. It's about panic, not gore. There aren't that many characters in it, and you really get to know them, you get to like them, and you are rooting for them. You want them to get out of this situation in the giant open sea of of zombie movie garbage that's out there. It's good. If you're looking for gore, then no, it's not going to satisfy you. But it is a solid, just all-around good movie. And with that, we're going to whittle this down to the three surviving films. Now, this might be a little tough because I do like all of these. If you have not seen them and you say that you are a horror fan, you have at least a weekend's worth of movies here. (laughs) So I'm going to cross off the ones first that I think might be more divisive, that might not appeal to as many people. I'm going to cross off The Caller because I I could see people saying that it's too slow. I'm going to cross off Land of the Dead pretty much for the same reason. It's a zombie movie without the zombie action that you expect. The zombies are always present and 
There are hordes and people die in it, of course, but I imagine it's a little too 70s for most people. I'll cross off the signal as well. The weird tonal mixture between the segments isn't necessarily ideal. Splinter and The Crazies are both really solid. If I had to pick one or the other, I would go with The Crazies. So I'll cross off Splinter. Not crossing off The Crazies yet. We'll take The Void off of here. The Void, the only issue again with The Void is probably that some people may not be satisfied with the answers or lack of answers. Among subspecies, Snapshot and Suicide Club. I can imagine Suicide Squad, wow. I can imagine Suicide Club being a little too unhappy and gross. It's not pleasant. I'll go ahead and cross off Suicide Club between Subspecies and Snapshot. I mean, wow, these are radically different movies. I mean, both of those are personal favorites, so that's that's actually tough. But if we're weighing favorite versus best and important, I would say Subspecies is more important only because of its history with the straight-to-video genre that ruled 90s video stores. But Snapshot is arguably the better film. If I had to choose which one to re-watch, like just put one on right now, I love a good straight-to-video film, so Subspecies holds a special place a little more in my heart than Snapshot, so I hate to do it, but I'm going to cross off Snapshot. Pontypool is great, so I'm hanging on to that. Suspiria, if you can be patient and just absorb the film and let it sort of wash over you without distraction, Suspiria can be amazing. So I'm hanging on to that too. So between those two and Subspecies and The Crazies, I have to cross off The Crazies. It's good. It's one of the last slightly higher budgeted studio-made theatrical horror films. But I'm going to cross off the crazies. I hate to do it. And I think that's actually my three then. Wow. To be honest, when I made this list, this is not at all where I expected to end up. I go into these episodes with a list, but I don't have my three picked out ahead of time. Of course, I know which ones I may or may not like more than others, but I sort of talk myself through it as we do the episode. And if you had asked me which ones I was going to pick before I started, it probably would not have been these three. So that's a little surprising, but they're all good. And this is where we ended up. And so now playing this week at Valley West Cinemas are Suspiria, Pontypool, and Subspecies. What do you think? Let us know on Twitter at VWestCinemas or Instagram at ValleyWestCinemas underscore podcast. And of course, please rate and review wherever you listen. That really does help us a lot. I'm your host, Aaron. Thank you for listening.